Good day, good morning, good evening, wherever you are. It's an honor to me to be the moderator of today's webinar. On behalf of the organizers, IFPRI and BMZ, I'd like to welcome you to today's session. Let me start with introducing myself. I am Stefan Kachelries Mattes and have the pleasure to lead the team at GIZ working for the Fund for International Agricultural Research commissioned by BMZ. I'm agronomist by training and I started my professional career at ICARDA in Syria and with ILCA in Nigeria. Today's program is anchored about these major elements. We'll have welcome remarks and setting the scene for today's topic of advancing food system transformation and the dialogue between German Development Corporation and CGIR. We'll be learning about building solutions by two examples. And there will be an opportunity for the panelists to present their experiences in looking forward for refining goals and prioritization. And you will have the opportunity to ask questions to the speakers via the chat function. Finally, we would wind up with some closing remarks and ideally a way forward. The idea of this webinar was born at a high level interaction between senior management of IFPRI and BMZ, and we are very happy to have you on today's webinar on our screens. Let me introduce our first speaker, the head of division of the Federal Ministry for Economic Cooperation and Development, Mr. Dirk Meyer, who will share his welcoming remarks with us. Please welcome Mr. Meyer. Uh, Mr. Kacharis Mattes, um, I greet you and I warmly greet you. Uh, dear ladies and gentlemen, I'm uh, delighted to welcome you to today's dialogue between German uh, Development Corporation and the CGIAR on advancing agri-food system um, transformation. It is exciting uh, to see so many, um, at least when all pictures are open, uh, to see so many international experts with backgrounds from agriculture research, development cooperation and uh, the academia, who will be addressing the interface between research and policy uh, today. The overall goal of German development policy is to support the achievement of the 2030 sustainable development goals in the fight against hunger and poverty, the leave no one behind approach is vital uh, to us. In the wake of growing food insecurity and imminent nutrition and climate crisis, there is an increasing focus on agri-food systems on the global stage. The UN Food Systems Summit in 2021 pinpointed how severely the current state of food system impacts global health, impacts economy, impacts environment and the livelihoods of farmers. The summit called to action for a sustainable transformation of food systems. Ladies and gentlemen, in, the, in line with global developments, the BMZ launched its new strategy on sustainable agri-food systems in 2021. The strategy underlines that in times of planetary limits, 
to food production, climate change and threats to human health, a fundamental transformation is urgently needed. The strategy identifies three areas of intervention which are also reflected in the new CGI AR initiative portfolio, namely rural development, food security and agriculture, with international agriculture research being an integral part of it as source of innovation. For decades, Germany has been a, role, uh, uh, sorry, a reliable partner of international agricultural research and has actively supported the one CGIAR reform process right from the beginning. After our parliamentary elections in September 2021, Germany, as you all probably know, has formed a new government and BMZ has, since December, a new leadership. Under this leadership, we focus on strong multilateral approaches with our partners. As a multilateral system, and thanks to its unified research framework under CGIAR, the CGIAR is an important partner for agri-food systems and transformation and the fight against climate change, and was a key contributor on the UN Food System Summit on COP26 in 2021. The BMZ has been particularly working towards strengthening the impact orientation on the CGIAR system. Therefore, we welcome the ongoing reform process. We accept, no, we expect, sorry, that the reform will produce tangible social and economic impact in an efficient way. It will involve more and better partnerships with key stakeholders. It will involve a stronger focus on scaling and research outputs. It's, it will involve more synergies and coherence through multidisciplinary teams with a stronger focus on a food systems approach and an overall higher efficiency with higher impact per input and an overall reduction of costs. Ladies and gentlemen, in the one CGIAR reform process, so far 19 of 33 new research initiatives have started their work in January 2022. Germany has selected a set of initiatives based on how well they align with being set by priorities. They will be funded with an initial uh, 21 million starting in 2021. Together with France and the European Commission, Germany will co-host the next CGIRR System Council meeting in Montpellier in which, amongst others, the final financial plan will be adopted. The meeting will be linked to the informal meeting of the EU ministers taking place in Montpellier the same week. We expect this to be an excellent opportunity to showcase how efficient research can contribute to political objectives and deliver impact at scale. Impact orientation will also be a topic for the panel discussion today. We strongly believe that a world without hunger 
within the planetary boundaries is possible. To achieve this, we must ensure a strong interplay between research and the policy level. I'm therefore very pleased to see this webinar come into reality. It's a unique opportunity to highlight past achievements and how international agricultural research has closely collaborated with and informed German cooperation and made its policy, strategy and implementation evidence-based. More importantly, today presents an excellent opportunity to look ahead and see how the strong CGIAR research agenda can inform and improve policy making around the world. I'm, ladies and gentlemen, looking forward to suggestions emerging from this event on how science, policy and practice can work together even more efficiently. That's what we all need in all subjects and especially in the agricultural sector. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you, Mr. Meyer, for your introduction and welcome and insight in our and your perspectives of German Development Corporation and its cooperation with CGIR. It's now another pleasure to introduce Mrs. Kundavi Kadirishan, the Managing Director for Global Engagement and Innovation within the CGR system organization and member of the EMT. She will help setting the scene by understanding our biggest challenges and the response by one CGR. Please, Kundavi, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, uh, Stefan. Colleagues, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, such visionary supporters and architects of agriculture innovation along with us here. And thank you, Dirk and Stefan, uh, for your excellent framing of our discussion here today. Uh, in particular, uh, we welcome the recognition of the importance of international research in driving critical innovation uh, in BMC's three main areas of intervention. Uh, with the one CJIR reform process that Dirk has referred to, uh, we have taken steps to embrace complexity and the interconnected nature of our food, land and water systems. So today, we need to improve food and nutrition security, while at the same time uh, increase biodiversity, spur economic growth and strengthen farmers' resilience in the face of uh, climate crisis. Our challenge in the past was a focus within technical silos, you know, crop specific or uh, anchored in the traditional demarcation of issues within governments, uh, be it environment, health, education. But to deliver impact at scale, solutions need to come from coordinated action across issues, but also across the private, public and civil society sectors. And research is key because it provides the evidence of what works and what doesn't. But we need to harness research to fuel innovation, which in turn allows us to accelerate progress towards zero hunger. The 500 million smallholder farmers that produce up to a third of our food cannot rely on policies, methods, and crop varieties that are decades old. Innovation could supercharge economic development and fight the many effects of the climate crisis being faced by farmers. 
Uh, a recent report from the CJAR supported Commission on Sustainable Agriculture Innovation found that the funding gap for agriculture innovation sits at close to 15.2 billion annually. Just for agriculture innovation alone, the funding gap is as huge as 15 billion annually. So that's a good place to start when talking about challenges. Why is that gap so wide? A key reason is scale. The problems that we are trying to solve are large scale, a systems problem, which is why at CGIR, we have built an innovation systems approach to deliver impact. Systems transformation requires a coordinated bundles of innovation, uh, technological, uh, social, institutional, and at the level of policies as well. This is a shift away from single innovations to a more integrated and responsive approach to delivering impact. What we mean practically by innovation systems is the facilitation of engagement among many actors, including enterprises, universities, research institutes. But we are also fully cognizant that timeframes for impact tend to exceed the lifetimes of research programs. That technology on its own does not create impact. That's why we will focus on best bundles of innovation that bring together three pathways. The first pathway is science outputs. Again, core developed knowledge products, technologies and services. The second pathway is capacity development, which must be directly associated with the innovation. Uh, for example, there's no point in proposing a climate data solution unless there is the capacity at the higher level to usefully deliver that information in a form that makes sense for the farmers. So we will focus on the training of trainers, the development of training programs with private sector partners, support to national partners, particularly the NAS, and lastly, decision support for policymakers at the global level. The last pathway is policy, which is crucial in moving us towards the SDGs and where we will need tight engagement with the regulatory bodies to ensure the enabling environment properly supports the scaling of innovations, particularly to research, to reach the disadvantaged communities women and youth and crucially behind all of this are scaling readiness assessments to navigate innovation packages through policy barriers the capacity gaps scientific challenges the pathways that i already talked about so they will all lead to impact we are extremely appreciative of germany's support in driving the one cgr reform process Partnerships such as the long-standing relationship that we have with the BMC will play a major role in strengthening our ability to implement our new research and innovation strategy and scale up real solutions to the increasingly complex and interconnected challenges that we face today. I'm very happy to be part of this conversation and join our German colleagues in this interesting discussion. Thank you very much for having us.
Thank you, Kundavi, for letting us understand the bigger picture of what CGR research can do and deliver to advance food system transformation. Now, after we have set the scene, let some of the actors come on stage to showcase what research can use can be used to to improve practice and support policy responses. The first actor is a program leader and senior research fellow at IFPRI's, uh, IFPRI's Development Strategy and Governments Division, Mr. Clemens Preisinger. He is based in Nairobi and brings with him experiences and insights for maintaining food and nutrition in secure, uh, security in fragile sites like Ethiopia, Sudan, and Yemen. After his, after his presentation, two more actors will join us on the stage, giving us their perspective from a successful collaboration in the sphere of adaptation in climate change and an analysis in value chain adaptation and its potential. Mr. Björn Hecht is a head of component and a team leader deployment deployed to Mozambique by GIZ for the Green Innovation Centers for Agriculture and the Food Sector. And he will be joined by Mrs. Stephanie Jacquet, who is a research team leader for finance and investment for climate action at the Alliance of Biodiversity International, NCIAD. Please be mindful of the time allocated to each of you. It is 10 minutes for the first or five minutes each for the second presentation and will remind you about the time spent. For the audience, we would like to indicate the possibility to post questions in the chat for consideration in the question and answer session later. Please, Mr. Breisinger, the floor is yours now. Thank you, Stefan. Hello, everyone. Now, in the next few minutes, I'll walk you through a few examples of where IFPRI and one CGIR policy research has really influenced policymaking, programming at the country level. And given the growing importance of development in a fragile context, I'll do so by giving you examples from Ethiopia, Yemen, and Sudan. Next, please. Now let's take a look at some of the critical issues in those three countries and let's be focused on three things here. The first thing that we'll be looking at is cash transfers in Yemen and how they work. Are they a good tool for reducing um, poverty and improving food security? Then in the case of Sudan, food subsidies, wheat and food aid are, are, are a big issue. And then finally, we look at agricultural institutions and policies in Ethiopia. Next, please. Okay, so a big question for work in uh, fragile contexts and in the case of Yemen specifically is do cash transfers actually work general and for nutrition uh, specifically? Now, IFPRI with partners conducted two evaluations to find out. The first is a cash for nutrition program. Um, uh, that's a program implemented by the Yemen Social Fund for Development. And basically, mothers receive cash transfers and are taught about child nutrition in group seminars. And our researchers used a rigorous RCT, randomized control design, um, to study um, that program. The second is a national cash transfer program implemented by the Social Welfare Fund. It's an unconditional cash transfer program, 
and our researchers used econometric analysis of a nationally representative panel survey data. Now, what are the findings? The overall finding is that cash for nutrition can really work also in conflict-affected states. Specifically, we find for the first program a positive impact on dietary diversity and nutrition, and that manifests itself in an increased share of household food budget devoted to healthy food, like vegetables, eggs, and dairy. Uh, we also see that under two children consume more food groups per day, a good sign, improved breastfeeding and water treatment uh, practices, and overall uh, improvements in height for HZ scores, an indication of good nutrition. Now, in the second case, we find that the cash transfers do not only increase the consumption level at the household level, but that it really also reduces negative impact of conflict on children's nutrition. Uh, next slide. Now, how does that translate into uh, influence at the policy level, at, at the programming level of our international partners? Uh, uh, first thing to report is that the World Bank expanded its support for cash transfers and related programs by 200 million, citing IFPRI's uh, work as one of the reasons to do so. Um, the second is that, as many of you may know, Germany through the KFW is invested in a cash transfer uh, program in, in Yemen, a significant amount. And the KFW showed strong interest in our results, and we had several info sessions uh, with them. More broadly speaking, the research findings informed the discussion of uh, several uh, high-level summits, including the United Nations Food System Summit, and it also made its way into several learning and guiding notes. Uh, so again, a strong indication of, of influence and usefulness of our work. Now let's switch over to the, to the next country. Next slide, uh, Sudan. Um, uh, big question over there is uh, the role of food subsidies and food aid, especially nowadays in the very complex um, situation. So IFPRI with partners, we conducted surveys and built models uh, to find out. Now, first of all, we have to say that affordable wheat products are critical for Sudan to achieve political and economic stability, a bit like what happened in the Arab Spring, uh, where um, food prices really matter a lot. Now, what do our results show? Uh, we can show that bread subsidies, and with that also the wheat donations uh, by donors, do increase consumption and lower prices. And that's obviously a good thing for our households. But at the same time, we see that over half of the value of wheat subsidies is captured by non-poor households. So basically, um, bread subsidies should be better targeted and other modes of social protection or investment should be considered like cash transfers. Next slide, please, to show you how that was useful for the international community um, and our partners. So donors consulted with us to inform their decision-making on whether or not to continue with donations. Um, the government of Sudan, and that was before the recent military takeover, and with support from the World Bank also, 
did introduce a cash transfer program following this idea of gradually um, shifting from food subsidies to cash subsidies. And so uh, a few policy recommendations as hopefully things stabilize in Sudan is also to increase investments in agriculture uh, with a focus on resilient and local crops, given all the uncertainties that are going on and also considering high value crops such as vegetables and fruit for areas that have uh, potential also to export them. Now let's move to our last country in this presentation, which is Ethiopia. And let's talk a bit about institutional uh, and capacity building uh, in, in that country. Now institutional capacity building really needs a longer term uh, perspective like the one CGIR is, 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 is providing in terms of the funding, but also in terms of in-country presence. So there are several key pillars um, of institution and capacity building. The first one is co-creation. It's really working with local partners on the research agenda, the policy agenda, um, collaborative research. So it's not only a training workshop, it's really working together with other researchers, with our other partners on a daily basis to jointly conduct work. That is the best way uh, to actually build capacity and then joint outreach and engagement, both for in-country, but also for cross-country learning. Now, um, funding by multiple donors and, and project has been a key to success. Um, now, hopefully with the one CGIR, there will be a more stable and longer term uh, engagement possible at the country level. And strong and long-term partnerships in-country are, are very important. Uh, like Kundavi has also mentioned with the government, but also with the private sector and also with research institute, the NARS, universities, um, etc. So next slide, please, to show you also for Ethiopia, what the influence uh, um, of that research program and uh, institution building was. So just three quick examples. So IFPRI and with that, the one CGIER worked closely with the Agricultural Transformation Agency in several aspects. I'm happy that uh, Khaled is, is on the call, who used to be the, the CEO of the ATA. I'm sure he'll, he'll talk more about that collaboration and the importance of research for agricultural transformation. Um, another important example is the evaluation of the Productive Safety Net program during the last 15 years. And clearly those research findings have identified achievements and weaknesses and led to corrective measures to improve the program over time. And the, the findings again were also used uh, by international partners and the government to justify um, the renewing of that program as it was shown to be successful. And maybe the last example is TEF policy, the, the, the local serial um, because of a systematic um, analysis that we and our colleagues conducted um, a few uh, months ago, um, we think that that has really contributed um, to the fact that the Ethiopian government has reconsidered um, to launch TEF on the commodity exchange. As the research clearly showed, there, there would be some challenges in doing so. Um, now, with these three examples, let me wrap up with the next slide. Um, 
So obviously these are just three examples from three countries. Um, IFPRI and the one CGIER is working on many more countries at the country level, country-owned demand-driven long-term engagement, multi-sector adaptive research agenda with national and international partners. And two of the main mechanisms for the time being are IFPRI's country strategy support programs, um, but then also the new one CGIR initiative on national policies and strategies um, that is inspired by the country programs, but in many ways enhanced and improved. Um, now the final slide, just to some overall conclusions, um, takeaway messages. So research-based evidence can really improve the design and implementation of policies and programs at the country level. And that is true for governments, but that's also true for our international partners, um, BMZ and, 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 and others. Um, the policy influence and sustained capacity building really requires a longer term perspective in country presence of researchers. And the good examples, as we have just hopefully all seen, are the country strategy support programs and the forthcoming one CGI, our national policies and strategies initiatives. And finally, research-based policy influence is often significantly enhanced by a strong collaboration between research, but then also by international partners. Together, we are stronger. Together, we can move more. And in that spirit, um, let me conclude by uh, saying again, uh, happy to be with you. And I wish all of you uh, a good rest of the session. Thank you very much, Mr. Reisinger, also for linking, for the linking of research and policy and research and policy in very challenging environments and that it is possible and worthwhile. Now, let us learn about the second case of mutual benefit in collaboration and the stage is your Mrs. Jacquet and Mr. Hecht. Good morning, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, it's a pleasure for me to present you the work we did uh, in 2020 in collaboration with uh, GIZ and the Green Innovation Center on adapting green innovation centers to climate change analysis of value chain adaptation potential. Next, please. So this work, were, which was implemented by the Alliance of Biodiversity International and SIAT, aimed at understanding the current impacts of climate on innovation and their potential on climate change adaptation. We also identified uh, measures easy to integrate in the Green Innovation Center in each country. Those were 16 countries. And this objective were implementing, implemented following a methodology which was a mix of literature review, survey, and key expert interview. Each report follows the same outline. Here you have an example of a front cover of one report. Next, please. So the analysis was implemented in 2020, as I said, in 16 Green Innovation Center at that time. 14 of those were located in Africa or are still located in Africa. And to achieve these results, we, we conducted 14 online surveys, one for each country. Um, however, two uh, countries where um, I ha did have a bit more constraint and uh, we did uh, the work desk-based for those two countries. 
Across the 16 report, we looked at 41 value chain representing 22 different uh, agricultural commodities. Uh, for example, uh, rice was assessed, assessed six times, several times in Africa, but also in Asia. The same for potatoes. Um, during this work, we identified or we worked with 291 adaptation practice, which we also called innovation in this work. And we grouped them into 23 different groups across the 16 uh, countries. Next, please. So now let me present uh, some of the analysis briefly uh, that we conducted in those uh, uh, 16 countries. So this is an example from Benin where we conducted the crop suitability analysis for the African rice. Uh, this analysis shows, uh, for example, that in the past, the rice was highly suitable in the Borgu and the South uh, Alibori region, and that by 2030 and 2050, the suitability for African rice will increase in the country and in the north specifically, and also in the south. You can see that also on the right-hand side maps where you can see the key change uh, for the future. Next, please. So that, as I said, we identified 291 practices that we grouped into 23 different groups. And here you can see the proportion by groups. Uh, it's very interesting to note that, for example, genetic and variety improvement represent 12% of all those practices. And marketing practices are also very well represented with 8.6%. Something also interesting to note is that uh, storage and post-harvest losses practices represented 8.6%. And we know that uh, post-harvest loss is a big issue in many countries and is increasing. And so um, it has a great impact on farmers and their, and their livelihood. And it's greatly important to address uh, this challenge. And that's why adaptation practices targeting this particular challenge is important. Next, please. So another analysis we did, uh, we didn't do the cost-benefit analysis, of course, on the 291 practice, but we did a selection um, through the survey in each country. And for example, in the case of Cameroon, we looked at the comparison between business as usual and the implementation of a CSA practice. In this case, it's improved varieties. And we can see that in some cases it helps with the yield, but in some cases it, it helps less. And we also did an analysis of the profitability of the investment and its riskiness. Here we see that it's very important to take the two into our account uh, and also uh, to look at the result to have the best picture on what would be the best CSA practice to uh, implement in this context. Next slide, please. Uh, at the end of each report, uh, we did uh, a summary, a synthesis of all the report outcome. And uh, this is a table that shows the consideration for advancing climate smart agriculture. In this case, in the, uh, this is Burkina Faso. So for each group of practice, we looked first at the partnership. So the partnership uh, shows us all the, the institution and organization working in this field, not only GIZ, but the entire spectrum of organization that can work, that are working currently on this. And this could be very useful for further implementation of a project or program in this sense. 
The second column focuses on the gap and constraint for scaling uh, climate smart agriculture at the farm level, but also at the institutional level. The third one is uh, also a very interesting column, which shows us what kind of uh, existing and potential funding could be leveraged to uh, also fund this type of work and for also organization to see with who they could partner with to improve uh, farmers' livelihood. And finally, the last column looks at synergies, uh, especially beneficial synergies for climate resilience. Next, please. So this work was done in the 16 countries and how this work has been used so far, uh, it has been used as a strong background information on climate modeling in the target region uh, because it gives a uh, very um, comprehensive information on the impacts of, value, uh, of climate on the value chain and the adaptation uh, option. It is also used as a basis for discussion with partner and stakeholder. We have tried through this work to use a very um, to use infographics to improve the visualization for the, of data in order to be able to speak with the, a wide range of stakeholders. And finally, we are currently implementing a new study which is uh, which was based on this uh, on this profile with GIZ which is called the resilience study, and it's focusing specifically on the topic of post-harvest loss, post-harvest losses and improved processing, as well as resilience and contribution to climate change. And uh, now let me give the floor to uh, Bjorn Est, who will uh, present you how the results of the study in Mozambique were applied. Thank you. Yeah, good afternoon. I see there's almost no time left. I will try to hurry up. So next slide, please. Um, I work in Mozambique as introduced and uh, we I just want to quickly show how we use the findings of the study in our project. So uh, this is a bit of an overview of what are the main um, impacts for the regions in which we work in future, the projected uh, climate changes and how it might impact the two uh, value chains that we work on, Pigeon P and Baobab. And uh, next slide, please. We also saw the um, suitability maps and the change of suitability in future, um, which for us uh, was more or less a, yeah, uh, supporting the thought that these value chains like Baobab and Pigeon Pea uh, are relatively resilient and will stay as productive in future as they are currently or almost as productive. Now we have the uh, same su suitability as you can see um, for pigeon pea in the region where we work uh, as it has been in the past and uh, even slightly more suitability in the area we work for baobab. Um, so we didn't need to uh, go into bigger strategies how to change the um, yeah, the, the uh, crop environment and the income uh, environment of those farmers. Next slide, please. I categorized um, the, or I grouped the uh, recommendations that CIET gave in the study into a few different points. Um, so conservation agriculture as the big field of uh, good agriculture practice, so to say, um, water management, processing, land restoration, uh, variety improvement, harvesting techniques, storage and marketing. And these are the recommendations that were given uh, out of the study for our value chains. 
Um, next slide, please. So we uh, compared this to what we're already doing. What's in green are innovations that we are already implementing. Um, for example, good agriculture practice. Um, we look at quality seed distribution and access to quality seeds for farmers. Uh, we're uh, yeah, promoting hermetic bags for storage for farmers. Um, we are supporting uh, women collectors organization uh, in the Baobab value chain. So all these kind of things already happened. Uh, in yellow, you can see what um, we are trying to implement uh, also following the recommendation because we see that there might be um, yeah, there might be still a good potential for adapting um, people in the local economy and actors along the value chain if local processing was increased that's currently missing and other points um, are not viable for us in the project for example irrigation schemes and drying techniques um, because we are a bit too far advanced in the project and cannot really take that on at the moment because it's not a low-hanging fruit to implement here uh, that's actually already it next slide is the thank you for listening yes uh, thank you mrs jackie and thank you mr hecht also for the two presentations and food for thought and insight especially of course, on the African continent and the practical examples, how both links up also, I think it shows another perspective related to what we have seen from Clemens Breisinger. So I would like to introduce more actors on that stage that we have put on the panel to share their way of looking forward based on their experiences. We would, we should also, use uh, and uh, learn about uh, priorities for the next steps to take from many different perspectives and experiences. Let me introduce the panel by starting by Khalid Bomba. He is the Managing Director of the Agri-Food Transformation Agency Support Center Task, which is a new program developed by the World Food Program in collaboration with FAO. Welcome, and your name has been said already earlier. Thank you for being with us. Second panelist is Mr. Elke Lüdeling. He leads the Horticultural Science Group at the University of Bonn, Germany, since 2018. His works, he works on food, dormancy, climate change, impacts on agriculture, agroforestry, and the use of decision analysis approaches in agricultural systems research. And I think that is why you are here. Welcome. Thank you. The third. Thirdly, I'd like to introduce Mrs. Claudia Ringler to the panel. She's Deputy the Division Director of the Environment and Production Technology Division at the International Food Policy Research Institute, IFPRI, where her research focuses on global water, food security, energy, gender, and climate change. She's also co-leads the Nexus Gains Initiative under one CGR. Happy to have you here, Claudia. Thank you. And the fourth panelist is Leonard Waltering, uh, who is a GIZ integrated expert scaling of, for scaling of innovations based at the International Maize and Wheat Improvement Center, CIMIT, and among the first members of the GIZ CGR task force on scaling. He's passionate about uh, uh, looking on the capacity and building of the capacity of scientists and development practitioners, practitioners to make sense of scaling in different contexts. Pleased to meet you, Leonard, here too. We have met in other occasions, of course. So I would like to ask one question per panelist. 
And I would like to make you aware again that it should just be like an initial statement or so, and that your answer should ideally be less than one and a half, maximum two minutes or so. So let me start in the reverse order. I would like to start with a question to Lennart. Lennart, could you please highlight for us some example of your recent work where research results have been successfully integrated into German development cooperation? Uh, thank you so much, uh, Stefan, and thank you for, for having me on this panel. So, yes, CIMIT is working with the green innovation centers that, that are working on uh, agricultural mechanization. We do this together with the University of Hohenheim and with, with FAO. So, this means like looking at uh, identifying uh, appropriate mechanization solutions for female and male smallholder farmers and businesses all over Africa, Vietnam, and, and, uh, and India as well. Um, this could be like um, um, post-harvest solutions, drying, storage, etc. Uh, but what we also do is we work a lot on scaling with the green innovation centers. So scaling is okay. How do you get? Uh, how do you sustain the adoption that you get through the project, and how can you even make it grow when the project ends? Right. So what we did, we took the latest research on scaling of innovations and condensed and translated that in an, in an user-friendly tool called the Scaling Scan. And in the last three months, we've applied this together with the GIZ uh, teams and their partners in Benin, uh, Burkina, uh, Zambia, Ethiopia, and, and Cameroon, uh, to really make sense of what are the opportunities and challenges for scaling. Uh, or as I think Kundavi said it earlier, what are those bundles of innovations that you need to accompany that core innovation uh, in that specific context, right? So just two weeks ago, uh, one of those teams realized that one of the innovations that they've been working on may be fantastic for an individual farmer, getting more yield, et cetera, but patent issues actually prevent it from scaling. And they diverted funding away to other innovations that the scaling scan identified as being more scalable in their context. No? So the tool is going around within the green innovation centers and it's being applied and adapted to basically rapid two hour sessions to two day sessions, whatever they, they need and how they see it fit. Right. And I'm also quite proud to say that this Monday we're starting the first scaling scan trainer program based on explicit demands by the GZ team in Benin, actually. Thank you for that again. And the participants will get a CIMIT Academy certificate after they complete like a four month coaching program where we help them facilitate scaling scan sessions in their own country. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lynette. Then, Claudia, please share yeah. with us one highlight from your own body of work when it comes to research informing development outcomes, please. Happy to do so. Uh, I guess as, as you, I think already implied, there are many, many possible examples, but just one is a, a current project that I've been uh, coordinating over the last three years is working with three uptake partners, uh, so our next users in Kenya, India and Uganda on strengthening women's access to climate resilience strategies through video based extension approaches. So that's basically supported by the Fund of International Agricultural Research. The project originally was set out to reach around 40,000 women farmers with climate resilience strategies, but the impact has already been much larger. 
So in at least one Ugandan district, the extension service just decided to purchase video-based extension equipment, uh, the, the, the video equipment, because they felt that the extension had a very strong positive impact on farmers' awareness, their knowledge, and also the, just the straight uptake of climate adaptation investments. The videos will also form part of the National Extension Service, so they wanted to develop a platform anyway. And so us working with them, you know, has really just helped to move that forward. In India, I think it's another interesting partner. So Self-Employed Women's Association is our next partner there, our next user. We work with them directly. So they plan to incorporate these video-based extension approaches directly into their own training and extension program. And they have 1.2 million uh, members, uh, you know, informal women workers in, in the agriculture sector. So again, I think at the end of the day, it will be a very successful project and we hope to see it to its conclusion. So thanks a lot. Highly appreciated. And I know that you have more examples that you could possibly name. Now to you, Eike, please let us know of which example from your experience would you favor to mention that illustrates how research can translate into development outcomes? Please. Thanks, Stefan. That's a very good uh, question. Of course, there, we've already heard about different pathways for how research can, can affect development outcomes from uh, Kundavi earlier. And I think I've gone through these different stages already. I mean, I've, try, I've tried the hard way, publishing research and hoping that somebody's going to read your paper and ultimately will take some better decisions somehow. And that's sort of happening after trying for 15 years on one little issue. But we've also, during my time off uh, at ECRAF, we thought a lot about impact pathways and all that stuff. And at the beginning, it's sort of a little bit odd. But once you start start realizing what this is about, kind of your strategy gets refined a little bit. And so we started looking at particular decisions somebody tried to take in development uh, or in poli policy making or somewhere, and we narrowed in on these decisions. Yeah? So we adopted an approach called decision analysis and actually worked with decision makers in figuring out what exactly they needed to know, what they, what they wanted to decide, and we made customized uh, models and, and pieces of research to really support these decisions. Uh, because if you think about impact pathways of research, there's always usually a decision somewhere in there that somebody needs to make take in a better way. And so this is what we what we zoomed in on. And sometimes it, it really turned out if you move more from the basic research perspective towards the knowledge brokering and facilitation role, then you can really make relatively good impacts quite, quite quickly. So we've had a few examples working with uh, county level policymakers in, in Kenya, for example, or with the GIZ Sustainable Banana Initiative, where really we had concrete questions to zoom in on and, and, and that really facilitated um, the, the impact, I think. And uh, I guess now the third pathway is where I am now back in German academia trying to teach these kind of uh, lessons that we learned, that I learned in the CGIR to the next generation. And that's that's the current mission and sort of this third pathway towards impact that I'm, I'm, I'm on currently. Thank you. That gives us the perspective also of academia. And now I have the pleasure again to ask a question to Khalid. Uh, last Thank but not least, on that first round of panelists, sort of which part of your work would you like to highlight where researchers successfully collaborated with the implementation partners for enhanced development outcomes, as you have already been mentioned? Please. <laughs> sure. Thank you, Stefan. And uh, as Clement mentioned, um, I work with uh, IFPRI and, and many partners during my time as the CEO of the Ethiopian Agricultural Transformation Agency where I was 
there for about 10 years until last year. So let me maybe highlight one specific example uh, from my time at, at ATA in Ethiopia that I think was quite uh, interesting and impactful in how research really changed um, uh, activities and, and uh, impact on the ground, which was in the seed sector. And, and in the seed sector in Ethiopia, about 10 years ago, as, as many people might remember, the seed sector is dominated by the public sector, especially on the production and distribution side of the equation. And it pre-produced a number of policy briefs that the ATA actually leveraged to um, convince policymakers in Ethiopia to test different innovations to open up the, uh, the seed sector to private engagement, both on the production side of seed as well as the distribution side. And on the distribution side, the ATA itself used some of uh, IFPRI's research to launch a project called the Direct Seed Marketing Project, which over time has actually uh, increased to the scope where more than 50% of the seed now distributed, uh, improved seed distributed in Ethiopia, actually goes through non-public channels. And this was, res was a, a result in large part from the research that IFPRI actually generated in the early stages of ATA's life, which gave us the basis to engage with policymakers to change the policy to open up the sector to the private sector. And then in addition to that, IFPRI actually conducted a series of different impact studies, as well as recommendations on ATA's project, the direct seed marketing project, which led to refinements in the project itself to improve the project over time. So IFPRI's engagement in generating research really allowed both policymakers in Ethiopia, as well as the ATA as an implementing partner to shape its activities uh, in, in increasing private sector investment. So I hope that's one specific example uh, that, that I can point to. Thank you. Khalid, uh, many, many thanks for that one also. And I know that uh, you, you mentioned at least one additional other element also it's research and policy but also you mentioned the private sector and i know that ata became something like a household name also or a brand when i remember when i was talking with adesina or so when he came back from ethiopia it, we always mentioned ata 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 so that was let, let's say every fifth sentence also had ATA in his uh, in, in his uh, speech also. So therefore, it seems that you have done a very good job there, obviously. Yeah, so while we are collecting and compiling um, inputs uh, from the chat also, I would like to ask a two-folded question to the panelists and first come, first serve also. So from your experience, what are the main ingredients for successful collaboration between science and policy? That's the first part of that question. And what are the major opportunities to achieve enhanced development outcomes? Now, let it settle for a few seconds and then. Claudia, ladies first, I like that one. Yes, please go ahead. I mean, really, just to summarize, I think some of the points that have already been said. So, uh, you know, Ike said there are decision moments, right, in every policymaker's <laughs> lifetime, hopefully good ones coming to good outcomes. And so if we uh, are able to provide research that supports, th that is targeted to those decision moments and that, that helps 
provides at least some goalposts. Of course, we usually don't want to predestine the answer, but we want to always give uh, options. So if you decide in this direction, this might be some of the outcomes, particularly for poor people uh, in environmental impact. So I think that's a key one. So the research has to be, um, you know, follow follow policy discussions. And I think Clement said it in a different way. You know, he talked about, you know, should we give cash? Should we give uh, direct food aid? You know, what is more sustainable? Uh, what actually reaches uh, poor mothers in this case? And there's always this question in, in, in humanitarian, humanitarian crisis situations. Can you really give money? Is, can you buy something with money? Um, and I'm, I'm in Lebanon right now. So there's, there's an interesting question there too. So, so and, and basically it was a big policy question and, and, you know, anecdotal evidence might say A or B. And so it's really important to, to actually take the time and do the research and then you can justify a $200 million or $500 million investment because you actually can base it on, on a very strong scientific uh, evidence. So basically answer questions, be there at the right decision space, uh, go deep enough in the country, be broad enough to, to support the overall policy discussion. Yeah, my quick answer. Yes. So uh, I thought to believe that I can raise his hand first. So as I said, first come, first serve, Leonard, you will have another opportunity. So being there at the right moment, at the right time, with the right solution, also with the right advice is probably one decisive factor. Please, I can. Yeah, precisely. I mean, I, I basically just want to back up what, what Claudia just said since she backed me up already. I mean, basically, it, it is about that science policy interface that we're talking about here. I mean, there needs to be a space where we actually talk to each other, to the governments, but also to BMZ, which we are doing right now already, or I should say we, but the CG researchers. I mean, there needs to be uh, close communication here because ultimately there are decisions that are being made. And, and, and I would want to believe that there is uncertainty and there are actual quest questions that policymakers have. Of course, most scientists, if they've just written whatever paper they want to write, then probably they're not answering that question. So we need to be there to have the conversation and actually answer the question when, when it's asked. And I think um, we often talk about how expensive the CG sometimes is, but if you think about the, the, um, the implications of the decisions that are made by governments and by, by development agencies, the, the, the money that is spent yeah, and, and the chance of, being, of spending it in a more efficient way justifies all kinds of expenses. In decision analysis, we have this, uh, this concept of the value of information. And I think we are the ones who can really deliver that high, high, value, high information value information to people that that allows development money to flow in the right in the right channels and so it's not the cg itself that needs to develop to deliver impact of course but they can actually give the well in the the, the um, critical inputs into the process in season the mechanisms that can deliver so i think um, that's that's the key to me to be in these interface moments and and at that place to give advice when it's needed Thank you. Thank you, Ike, also again for this uh, sort of, yeah, it's uh, to, to be there at a decisive moment and have the backup and have something also that can actually be shared and helps inform policy or decision making, I think is a very crucial element. I have collected, if, or Katala has helped me also to collect a few questions in the chat also, and there's one also that is more related eventually to our BMZ speaker, but I tend to believe that Mr. Meyer is no longer on the on the call or so, and that is sort of maybe the panelists can say still something also maybe uh, 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 Clemens also how 
how can you, what have been very important elements also in, in those very critical environments? Like we have a question about how can CGI and German development cooperation work in countries like Afghanistan or in Sudan? So maybe there is a, yeah, an element of response that you can say also because policy making in fragile contexts is much less easier than it is in other contexts. Sure. So I think a really important element is the strong collaboration among all of us. We all have different strengths. Um, CGIR is at the side of research. Let's take WFP. They have a lot of intelligence on the ground. Uh, we have um, the German government which had some, let's say, uh, leverage in terms of funding, in terms of um, political influence like many other countries too. So working together uh, is, is the key. Uh, a good news is also that the technology and innovation can help us a lot in terms of research. We have learned that phone-based surveys can work well and they can be done remotely. We are very good nowadays in using satellite imagery um, all kind of uh, other innovative data and tools. So I think nowadays we are in a much stronger position um, to actually do meaningful work hand in hand um, in fragile states. Yeah, so that seems to be a very important uh, challenge to all of us. Maybe in the second round or so, um, Let's take up again the, the challenge also. Sometimes we may have the impression that, let's say, policy and development practice do not necessarily always get hand in hand and are not fully evidence-based. And I think you already mentioned uh, that in, in, in some of your statements also. Where would you see main obstacles for research results, results to be translated into better decision-making and outcomes? I mean, I was addressing Khalid already a little bit on that one, but um, that is, seems to be a very important element as well. Yeah, Khalid, please. And then Leonard, also that you also get your opportunity, please. Thank you, Stefan. You know, when, when it comes to this link between uh, evidence-based policymaking and, and development actions on the ground, I, I'd go back to a point that Clement made earlier uh, in, in IFPRI's work in Ethiopia, which is all, which is which has a which has a big component around capacity building and institutional engagement, and I think that becomes even more important in fragile states to ensure that there is there are there is a uh, a group of actors that you can engage with in the country that are implementing on the ground in a sustainable way, and ultimately, public sector actors need to be foremost among those partners that the CG Center engages with, and in many of these fragile states, that public sector is, is weak, unfortunately. And as a result, I think in addition to providing policy advice, there needs to be a component of capacity building embedded within that. Now, for example, the entire creation of the ATA itself, I think people forget, IFPRI was involved in that process in providing the recommendation to the government of Ethiopia and to the Gates Foundation at the beginning on the design of the ATA, as well as the preliminary areas where the organization focuses its attention. So in this way, I think the CG Center can play an enormous role 
in helping fragile states and countries in general think about their institutional architecture to provide recommendations on how to strengthen the public sector so that the CG Center has a capable partner to engage with. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to really have sustainable development in many of these countries. Yes, thank you, Khalid. Lennart, you wanted to add? Yeah, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks, Stefan. Yeah, I think it, uh, one important element is also the alignment between research and development funding. I, I can name a few donors that I've worked with where they had a, a, a unit for research and, and the, the bigger than development uh, units, but they were always kind of like not speaking to each other or not really aligned. So I think bringing them together through incentives, uh, funding and other things is really important. Otherwise, they're, they're kind of detached in many ways. And then on the, the evidence-based, I think Clemens gave a nice example for Sudan, I think, of how, it, how important it is to have these decision makers be part of developing those research, uh, research questions because they are the ones that have the skin in the game. They are the ones that have to make that yes, no, no decision. And I think on the research side, I think we need to be very cognizant of the, the role of context in which that, such a research result actually comes in, right? These decision makers have many things to, to, to weigh to make that decision. For example, we do a lot of research on develop particular technologies or innovations, but yeah, then you say, okay, to this farmer, yeah, this is much better than this one. Why don't you do that? But yeah, that farmer has off farm income. He says, well, maybe I can use my labor better to go and work in the city and I can still feed my children. It's less risky, et cetera, right? So, and the same goes for the policymaker who may say, okay, I want to continue subsidizing this machinery, which is not as good as the one that you're proposing me, but the ecosystem of actors, the rules and regulations are already in place around that subsidized machinery that you basically stick with that. So evidence-based, yes, but I think there's also this really, uh, this, this real world challenges that prevent people from taking those kind of best decisions, right? From our perspective. Thanks. Thank you, Lenato. So, so you actually widened the scope also. There was a mention of the private sectors, there was mention of policy, there's research, and then of course, uh, it is, uh, Donors engagement, as also Khalid uh, pointed out, also so that needs to be a joint interest for things to work. Also, that we all should pull at the same end of of the string. So um, there is a, a, a question also that leads us a little bit into a different into a different perspective. Also, although Kaderation uh, uh, is no longer there, but from uh, from Ghana also there is will the one CGR embrace agroecology yeah, sort of now we look at the social economic and political aspects also now let's look at an ecological aspect part of the sustainability as uh, recommended by one of the main coalitions of the UNFSS which was mentioned in the opening speeches also by the high level panel of experts of the U UN committee of food so, yes, Claudia, please. Yeah, so just to quickly answer that question, yes, there is an agroecology initiative and it's going to work in many countries uh, developing ob observatory and observatory approach and really bringing evidence-based analysis to this question. 
And I guess, I think as everyone in the audience already knows, you know, agroecology is not a standalone approach. So, you know, pretty much everything we do in agriculture includes agroecological principles. Uh, there was a new report by the Committee on World Food Security that again, uh, described a lot of these approaches. And, but I think it's still good, you know, to do more in-depth research. I think to really show the potential, show the importance of bringing agroecological approaches with together with other approaches and, and also, you know, impacts on women, men, farmers, bringing a much more, a stronger social perspective, I think, into the agroecological approaches and again, under climate change and, and, and other stressors. So I think, yes. So if anyone wants to engage in this initiative, uh, please just reach out to Kundavi, to anyone in CGR. We can all make the linkages for you. Thank you. Yes, uh, thank you, Claudia, for, for, pointing, for pointing that out. Um, there are questions now. So now we have a look at uh, agroecology. Now, of course, we have a policy not made for politicians. Policy should be made for the people also to achieve a number of set objectives and targets also. And then when I look in the chat, there are a few about, and it was mentioned because we talk about the transformation of the agro food system also, then there are a few mentioned about um, nutritional aspects also. and. Uh, Question to Clemens first. Also, when you did you include nutrient losses, including losses occurring at household, in the kitchen, into your value chain assessments? And I would like to join that question also. When you look at nutrient and nutrition education, of course, people like Emma uh, Jordan in the chat also are wondering why have you chosen bread? Or what why has bread been chosen also? It's not the most healthiest food, also, but Maybe there are other ways on how to address it, please. Look, I think um, it's important to distinguish between a situation of hunger and severe malnutrition, which you could measure as a calorie deficiency, or uh, a situation of, let's say, lack of dietary diversity. And so the first issue is a much more severe problem. And that quite often happens in conflict-affected states. People simply don't have enough food to eat. So it's not a question of, can, shall I buy a bread or shall I buy a salad? That's not really the question. You have to buy bread because that, that gives you more calories. So only in the next stage, let's say, when people are a bit better off, comes the question of dietary diversity. And I think this is something very important to highlight. And that is also something I think that is very often confused. There are a lot of indicators out there that are broadly related to diets. Let's put it that way. Um, and so uh, I think we have to, let's say, first ourselves be mindful of the important differences. And then in our communication with policymakers, also be very clear um, and focus on the indicators that, that are relevant to the context. Um, so that, that, that are my initial thoughts. Big difference between hunger and uh, diet. Okay, thanks very much also. And I think in some cases that type of precision is actually needed to know, okay, with which tool to use for which 
type of problem. I would like to continue a little bit along that idea of value chains also when it comes to nutrition, it comes from there is, I think we have heard that from farm to fork and, 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 and other keywords also along value chains also until you reach the different households and the different consumers from a production side also sort of when you look at these uh, when you look at these uh, um, experiences um, have can you elaborate a little bit more how has the informal sector been assessed too sort of not only policy made from the let's say public part also but also on the informal part um, how that food environment also is built but of those agricultural transformation is not only public transformation, it is involves so many more actors. Who would like to take that part? Claudia is very courageous. Okay, just to understand, so we, we, we're, we're talking about the informal food system, food vendors in urban areas and so forth. I mean, just as an example, there's obviously been a lot of research uh, during the COVID-19 crisis uh, because you know, the wet markets were often closed. So often informal markets, you know, with very severe consequences, not just for the vendors, but obviously also for um, the much generally poorer population relying on those markets. So some of the policy decisions and policy choices by governments, you know, especially in the very early, very rush stages of the COVID-19 crisis, were very clearly, um, um, yeah, uh, probably wrong, but obviously everyone in the world has <laughs> taken a lot of wrong decisions at, at that point and, and obviously still does. Um, yeah, there's a lot of research certainly on uh, the informal um, food vending business sectors, there's food safety issues, there is um, regulations, harassment, uh, policies, and, and how those affect the food and nutrition security in urban spaces. So there's definitely a lot of work going on. There's actually an urban um, urban food systems initiative, um, in, anyway, an initiative that just focuses on urban food systems and, and how these urban food systems are linked with rural food sheds. Um, yeah, so I think it's definitely an area where a lot of work is being done, but certainly more work could be done. I think CGR overall is, is stronger on the production side, but certainly uh, is also looking in, in the informal um, food vending space. And obviously women also have uh, often you know, very important roles in, in that space. Okay, thanks Claudia again for that. Sort of the informal sector, of course, forms part of transforming agro food systems also. So that has been there. I have a very particular question, and I'm not very sure also if there's anyone on the panel also that can actually respond to it. Also, it is it was meant for the second presentation also um, from Tom from Murik. Also, where are you considering establishment grow and growth of plant until maturity? And then with this particular address, a particular question about currently baobab is naturally generating, regenerating plant, but not cultivated. So when we talk about food systems, so it's not only food grown, but there is a lot of food collected, food coming from other sources. So, so how does that fit into our perspective and how does policy and research need to address these type of questions? I can see that uh, Stefanie has lighted up her video, so that's a very good sign. Please. 
that is very true. And uh, I think the way we have analyzed this uh, different value chain is also um, through the, the harvest and post-processing, which is also important to take into account. So here we can, as uh, Bjorn has shown it, we can definitely improve the way it's processed, the way we transform the product so it brings more income to the producer. And in that case, in Mozambique, it has brought a lot of women together which, who have been able then to bargain together in the market and to keep the income for themselves. They even have been so strong that they have kept the men away of uh, coming into the value chain by being in, into uh, together into this value chain. So this aspect cannot be uh, neglected. And it has, uh, of course, Baobab, we cannot grow Baobab as such, but there are some efforts in other countries where they try to have faster growing trees. But definitely the, the focus should be more on the processing and how to bring this actor together and improve the value chain. So I need to unmute when I say yes. <laughs> Thanks, Stephanie. Um, uh, before I go a little bit more further towards also an, an, an outlook and the priorities to be set also, there's a very particular question also from University of Bonn that may be, may be going to University of Bonn from Jan Hellenberger also, who thinks also how can we include the importance of system transformation in the curricula of our agricultural research universities. So, of course, we have international agricultural research here also, but of course, we know that these are not the only ones. And Kondavi, in her opening speech, also mentioned NARS also. So, please consider yourself as NARS and maybe you can respond twofold. Okay, I'll, I'll take that one since it comes from my university. Um, and actually, it's it's not it's not so easy. Yeah? Um, to to obviously we we uh, we learned there there are certain skills that are needed in researchers for international development for that policy science interface for impact pathways and theories of change uh, change and all that business. And I don't know about my German colleagues here, but I had to learn these things after university, like when actually working in the CG. This is when I came in contact with these things. And I think this needs to be integrated into study programs much earlier and much more strongly. And I now lead a, a study program uh, on development re, um, related agricultural research, and we're, we're going to try this. And I'm also active in the in ATSAF, in the Council for um, for Tropical and Subtropical Agricultural Research in Germany, where we kind of have a basically this is the community of everyone working in this space in Germany. And I must say it's an enormous struggle to keep to get to get the resources together to deliver the kind of skills to people that are needed in, in the space that we're talking about. And I, I, I often wish that was easier because we're we're not so so many in Germany who have the perspective that's needed here. And we're constantly struggling to like get together a few euros for a Tropen Talk conference and all that stuff. And I really wish that was easier and would make it easier to work um, work towards this system that we're talking about and these impact orientations. Thank you very much. So you actually have to start early to build politicians, researchers, and people to actually understand that they are mutually dependent. I've seen that Leonard raised his hand and is impatient to say something. Please, Leonard. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you so much, Stefan. Yeah, I, I, that question I think is, is super important. I think we really have to see the CGIR also as um, as as the responsibility of us really to socialize some of these concepts and ideas. And when I started working on scaling five years ago, it was very theoretical, very conceptual, very academic, and very difficult 
to work with it. And I think see similar stuff going on now with the assistance transformation. People were throwing around the word scaling five years ago, but if you ask a little bit more, it's basically like, okay, we want to reach more, but it, it doesn't have all the, the different dimensions of it that, that, you know, that we should be taking care of. And the same goes now with food systems change. Uh, we say it a lot, but I think we really need to, to come to terms with it, what it means and how we can apply it and what, what, what can we do and what can we not do. So I, I really like this question and I think that we as, 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 as researchers in the CG have an important role to play to socialize these kind of concepts and support that process in collaboration with, uh, with others. Thanks. Thanks, Leonardo. So I think that's another very important aspect and I can't recall now who mentioned it also. Of course, when we talk about international agricultural research, we think about sort of the hardcore science, more like agronomy and breeding and others also, but I think it is gradually gaining more, yeah, attention also the social scientists uh, sciences and economics and and associated sciences also are very relevant to build the necessary recommendation and understanding on policy advice to be heard to be meaningful and actually to be able to produce the uh, the necessary impact now um, I would like to turn again the discussion a little bit towards uh, the uh, towards a uh, wrap up and, and and some statements also related to it also and I will use the the question asked by my colleague Sarah Schmidt also sort of it's more how can CGR policy research work together with other disciplines in the one CG context I mean we're now looking at several initiatives that and several impact areas uh, Kadiration also mentioned this so that policy also works with plant health with breeding with other topics also whether it being fish or livestock and uh, um, maybe we can hear from you a little bit also how how would you see next steps in the current situation also on how to bring policy and uh, cg research and initiatives together so that's a joint effort Again, first come, first serve. Kali, please. Thank you, Stefan. Maybe I would highlight the opportunity presented by um, countries that are looking to move forward from the Food Systems Summit and then the plans that they've developed and looking at opportunities related to the bundles of innovation that were, that were mentioned before. I think the CG Center really does have um, a huge uh, both responsibility as well as opportunity to engage these countries in coming up with these types of bundles of innovation around the plans that they've already developed. And I think uh, the, the, the key issue is going to be identifying how to uh, translate uh, some of these innovations, some of the research that's been done in these areas into actions on the ground. And that's, you know, I keep coming back to my experience with the ATA, but that's why these types of institutions are, are so important uh, because ultimately, you do, you do need to translate uh, policy recommendations to actual policies. And then even once those policies are passed, they've got to be implemented on the ground. And that's why these institutions are so important. But I think these, this concept of a bundle of innovations, I think, is really a very good one to use within the context of a, of a food system summit next steps. Thank you. 
So I'll make a short competition also, only two, two eventually say, is there a major takeaway that from listening to each other also that you have from this particular session? Lennart has one, that's very good, please. Well, and then Claudia. Yeah, thanks. Well, maybe one uh, takeaway is also something that was, was missing, I think. Yes, the, the German development cooperation can, can take a lot from the CGIR, but I think also the other way around. I, in my career, I started five years in the CGIR in West Africa. Then I moved to, to GIZ. I was six years working for GIZ as a consultant mostly uh, and learned about capacity works, their, their methods around capacity development and really how that is ingrained in the methodology. The, the multi-level approach, the Mir-Ebene-Ansatz, where every program has a policy uh, a dimension, a value chain dimension, and let's say a farmer dimension. And I think these are the really things that also we in the CGR can really learn a lot from uh, in how you approach development, how you see capacity development at all these different levels as well. So I, I just want to make that point uh, before the bell rings, uh, that it's really not only a one-way street. Uh, there's a lot to learn from the GIZ as well. Thanks. Thank you, Claudia. Now, 30 seconds. I know. Oh. <laughs> yeah, so really just to say, I mean, CGR's mission, you know, our vision is to achieve uh, food security, zero hunger, nutrition security um, in a climate crisis. So definitely system transformation is now at the core of CGIR and you know, reading the new um, One World No Hunger strategy, I think it's really very, very much aligned. I think we've heard a lot about so many new initiatives, new programs, um, continued engagement with uh, BMZ, GSZ. So I just think it's really a period of opportunity, but of course also, you know, a period of extreme need, much more need uh, than, you know, just 10 years ago. Food insecurity has dramatically increased. We, we obviously haven't had time to talk about that, but we definitely need to do better and, and much faster and, and act more agile and, and in a much more uncertain world. And so I think, yeah, lots to do. You know, when I joined CGR, I thought in 10, 15 years, <laughs> we, we are not needed anymore. And obviously uh, reality has changed. So there's uh, no doubt there. So yeah, that's all. Just wanted to summarize, you know, what I've heard in this uh, excellent event so far. Thank you. Thank you, Claudia. So we should give the voice again to two representatives of our organizers. And uh, I've already seen that Felicitas Rurik has turned on her screen and uh, Tönis van Reunen is also with us. So I would like to start with ladies first. Felicitas Rurik, please. What is your takeaway and closing remark? Thank you. Thank you very much also to everyone who has contributed today. Maybe first of all, allow me to join also Dirk Meyer, who was speaking in the beginning and saying how delighted I am to see this dialogue between the German Development Corporation and the CGIAR really coming to life. We have planned this uh, with support from IFPRI and the GIZ since late 2021. Um, we have heard today really multiple examples of past collaboration between the CGIAR and German Development Corporation. There were two in-depth case studies from IFPRI and the Alliance of Biodiversity International, SEAD and GIZ, but really also further examples from the panel. And I think it was a really impressive array of success stories. And at the same time, it also showed the diversity of impact pathways that research can have into supporting the transformation of agriculture and food systems. 
now the panelists have uh, shed light on some recipes for success stories for success and also hindering factors priorities um there was really a lot in there i think i have taken away a few key points for myself um, one point that I particularly liked was really um, highlighting the need to provide research that is targeted to decision moments, really showing again through, I think, various examples, the importance and also the great use for research to follow and provide evidence for policy decisions. I think that's a, a really, really great advantage. Um, I've also taken away that strong collaboration is key across uh, research, government, donors, actors on the ground especially but not only when it comes to work in fragile contexts so really um, trying to make sure we make use of the different strengths of all the different actors who are engaged um, then another point that i also really uh, think is is uh, really came out very strongly is the need to have also a component of capacity builder building embedded in the policy research um, I think it was it was kind of um, made very clear with an example to to highlight that this then enables the partners on the ground to really make sure that the re research results from the CG can actually be taken up um, by the partners on the ground. And I think it was also highlighted again in the end um, in the discussion um, mentioning the the different approaches to capacity building. So this is of course something that is also very important for us. So so. That was a point that I think um, we can we can really focus on in the future. And then the last point um, that I've also taken away is really the need to focus on how innovations can really be implemented at scale. So really have a focus on which innovations um, have actually the greatest impacts, and then also how we can scale them out um, in the in the larger scale. Yeah, I, I will conclude just by saying that uh, Germany will remain a reliable partner of international agricultural research um, in the process of implementing the BMZ strategy on sustainable agriculture food systems. We will keep stressing the importance of translating research into policy and implementation of outcomes um, and tangible impacts through effective partnerships. So I think this event has really provided very valuable guidance for a strong interplay between research and policy. And yeah, I would like to once more thank you all for making it a success. Thank you, Mrs. Rueger. So now, Chinese, last but not least also. Yeah. Um, you are here in your capacity as a director of business development and external relations. So maybe you also have a few were few more words to share as we have uh, consumed our time already thank you i i will be short but i i do want to thank all the uh, presenters the panelists and the participants for uh, really a, a wonderful and very exciting uh, webinar and i wrote down a few quick points that i uh, was reflecting on against the background of how can we have more impact and the first one is that uh, I think it's very important that we have more and better partnerships. That's point number one. That the need to achieve more synergies and coherence through multidisciplinary teams, the need for innovative systems approach. It was already mentioned the importance of combining policy, research, and capacity building. It was reflected on several times during the uh, presentations and discussions that programs and, and, and um, policies that are embedded in, in evidence-based 
have really more impact than when they're not. And it was also very much emphasized the importance of not being quick in these investments. Sometimes when you want to develop capacities and have sustainable policy influence, this is a long-term investment. It's not a, just you come and you go. It is it's something that you have to do quick. Several mentioned also the importance of working together. So researchers working with donors, working with implementation partners in order to have more impact on the ground. Now, Derek was completely right when he mentioned that the CGIR should be more uh, um, impact oriented and the challenges that we face are immense and, and we really need to see how we can make a difference. Finally, and I know my time is over, but I really want to thank GIZ and BMZ for also this wonderful collaboration. I really enjoyed working together with you and your teams in order to set up this, this seminar and I look forward to the next one. So thank you, Dankeschön. I would not only like to thank you, Tönis, also, but everyone who contributed on stage or remotely to today's discussion. The possible continuation of this type of webinar is considered. And of course, we would like to welcome more actors on the scene to offer you more insights and possibility of interaction in the future. Thanks also to the organizers and everybody who contributed in their capacity to the webinar to take place. Thank you very much and goodbye.